Well, I'm really excited tonight to introduce Dr. Jim Ekman to all of you. Um, We've got quite a privilege here to have him uh, with us, not only tonight, but he's going to be here with us the next two Wednesday nights as well. And um, Dr. Jim Ekman is the President Emeritus uh, at Grace University. He's also still a professor at Grace. Um, if, you, if you know uh, Dr. Ekman, he, he travels around the Midwest speaking nearly every weekend. He does conferences and he has his own radio program, Issues in Perspective. He's a very busy guy um, who his wife questions his retirement a little bit and rightly so. So we're excited to, uh, to have him to have him here with us. So, Dr. Jim Ekman, if you want to come on forward, and um, why don't we give him a, a warm welcome. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, good evening. Boy, that was a robust uh, greeting. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure how this is going to go, Jeff. Uh, <clears throat> maybe you should think of somebody else. Um, it's a, it is really an honor for me to be here. Uh, a number of you, as I look around, I've seen, I, I know a few of you are former students of mine. The rest of you are really glad you never were a student of mine. But uh, it is an honor for me to be here. I have a lot of uh, warm uh, feelings and admiration for all that's going on at Brookside. And um, I met with Jeff and have a lot of respect for him. And he was telling me uh, one of the times we met, and then we've done a lot of emailing back and forth of what you're trying to do here at Brookside with this D6 ministry and the effort that that entails. Uh, I really affirm that. I'm very involved. I'm involved now in a church plant. Now that I'm retired, I'm on staff part-time at that church, and we're trying to learn from a lot of the mistakes over uh, the years that youth ministers made. And that's not, a, that's not a condemnation of anything or anyone. It's just we learn about ministry and we learn how to do things better. And most people would agree that we need to change some of the things we're doing with our youth. And so what your church is trying to do is very much in line with what my interests are and uh, the things that our church, which is a very small church, uh, church plant, is trying to do. Jeff had suggested a number of things for me to think about doing, and um, I'm not saying he told me exactly what to do, but he kind of gave me some boundaries, so I'm trying to follow those. And the other very important thing he told me to do, and this is, quote, you must be done at 717, close quote. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I have been in ministry all of my adult life, and always people say, you know, trying to finish it. I've never heard anyone tell me, be finished at 717. You know, it's usually about 720 or 715. No, 717. So I'm hoping my watch is set exactly according to his watch, because if not, I'm going to be in trouble. I want to do three things. Um, first of all, tonight, what I would like to do is in many ways, it'll probably be a review, but to think with you a little bit about when we use the term worldview, what do we mean by that? What are some of the questions that a worldview should be able to answer? And then finally, is Christianity a worldview? Then next week, what I want to do is I want to pose a series of questions. And those questions are questions that I believe a young adult who is finishing high school and about to transition to college, what questions should they be able to answer? 
And there are questions that if, if they go to a non-faith-based institution, and generally speaking, that's where most of our children end up going, um, the, the general situation in a typical college university today is not neutral complacency toward Christianity. It's a, it's a pretty hostile perspective on Christianity. And our, our kids need to be able to answer some questions. And I'm going to pose some of those questions, and then I'm going to suggest resources, uh, three of them particularly, that as, as you are just helping your child through all of the years that are ahead of them before they leave you for college, um, that you, you want to try to do everything you can as you cooperate with, work with the church and all of the things that are going on in the larger and broader church, that our kids are really going to be as best equipped as they possibly can be. Because there's not neutrality anymore, there's often hostility. And largely it's because biblical Christianity has drawn some lines in the sand when it comes to cultural and worldview issues that very few other worldviews are, are, are drawing those same lines. And then the last week I'm here, I'm going to just share some of my heart. Uh, I'm a parent. Uh, Peggy and I have raised two kids. Our son is 32 and married. Uh, he lives in England. Uh, and just a sidebar, they're expecting their first child in two months, our first grandchild. So we're sort of excited about that. Then our daughter, our second child, our daughter is 26 and she's married and lives here in Omaha and we're thankful for that. And she teaches fifth grade here in an elementary school in the city. So what I'd, what I'd like to do is, uh, in addition, and we, the time constraint is a reality, but if you have some questions um, that are short, pithy, and succinct, don't be afraid to answer, ask them, okay? Jeff has asked me to make sure that I repeat the question. So as I start, and uh, uh, I'm going to do the best I can to accomplish those three major topics in the three evenings we have together, I do want you to have the freedom to ask questions. And um, if you really have something that's of great importance to you, don't be afraid to email me. I respond to my emails. I generally do not let stuff st stack up in my inbox or, uh, at all, so I respond to them. And my email is jeckman, J-E-C-K-M-A-N, at graceu.edu, and I will respond to it. Let's get started. Let's think together about this word. Uh, my, this is interesting at Brookside. You hit, okay, I'm going to put that down. What do we mean by the term worldview? And uh, this is my definition, this is my way of thinking about it. There are all kinds of definitions out there, but uh, let's think about it as a frame of reference for all thought and action. <clears throat> a worldview uh, is not only a cluster of ideas that involves our mind, but it's a cluster of ideas that involves our mind that leads to action. That's why some people, I, I'm not sure I'm hearing that as much as I used to, but that's why some people talk about it as a world and life view. And actually I think that's kind of helpful because um, I believe very strongly I've given my life to this proposition, believe me, but I believe ideas have consequences. I, I think the, the, the cluster of ideas that kind of 
you gain as you begin your walk with Christ and as you begin to study his word and you begin to internalize his word, that creates a, a set of ideas, it creates a set of propositions, it creates a set of convictions which then result in a set of actions. In other words, what you're thinking about and how you understand, perceive, and process things which lead to convictions that you develop produce actions. And so it is a frame of reference for all thought and action. And as a Christian, which is what we are talking about, the frame of reference we have, that frame of reference is God's Word. And it's that complete verbal revelation of God. I'm not, I'm not leaving out the other sources of God's revelation, His natural revelation, what He's created, and so on, uh, the role conscience plays, and so on. But I do think it is primarily God's Word. That's a propositional revelation. It's a verbal revelation. We build our doctrine around that revelation. We build our understanding of God around that revelation. We, begin our un, uh, we develop our understanding of Jesus around that. We understand salvation because of that revelation. And then as that becomes settled, then we start to see everything about my life to one degree or another is touched in that book. There is, there is uh, with, I believe, crystal clear clarity, a set of values that God's verbal revelation lays out for us. There is, uh, with crystal clear clarity, God's morality laid out. And then, even more importantly, at least from my perspective, there's a set of ethical standards by which we are to organize our lives. Very clear. And as has been said many, many times, that moral and ethical framework in the scriptures is really reflecting the character of God. But the best way to start thinking about that, of course, is the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are really God's moral and ethical character revealed. And so as we start to think that way, as we begin to organize our thinking around those propositions that I very, very briefly and somewhat haphazardly uh, talked about, it leads to action. It affects how we live our lives. And I don't think there's anything you want more for your kids. I certainly wanted that for mine when they were growing up. That they will adopt and begin to internalize the values, morals, and ethical standards of my God. An educator by the name of Kohlberg has done a lot of research, and he's uh, kind of an expert in this. And I'm not sure I agree totally, but he helps us to think about some things Children, the first five, six years of their lives basically organize their thinking and actions around what mommy and daddy say. And if mommy and daddy tell me not to do this and I do it, I'm going to get my hand smacked or I'm going to have to have time out and sit on the couch or I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do in playing. They haven't thought through anything. They have no particular value system. But, I mean, they're just what mommy and daddy do. That's, that's how I live. And then somewhere around six or so to somewhere around 11, um, the right and wrong concepts they have, the values they've adopted, if they have ethical standards, again, they're pretty much mirroring what you do. 
And if they see inconsistency and hypocrisy, that's very, very confusing for a child. And so more and more we see as Kohlberg, and he's not a Christian, but as Kohlberg really argues, it's really important for parents to be consistent. If they're going to say something, live that, or don't say anything. And Deuteronomy 6 says that, doesn't it? That's how we're to act as parents. Formal time of instruction, informal time of modeling what we, what we teach. And if we're not going to do that, let's do our kids a favor and not say anything. But then he says, and this is where I think is really, start, really important, somewhere around 11 or 12, of course it depends on the child, but somewhere around 11 or 12, they're starting to develop their own value system. And by the time they're 15 or 16, they have a value system. They have a set of ethical standards. And of course, our goal as parents is that they're the standards that are ours, that we've modeled, that we gained from our walk with Jesus Christ, and that's what they are now internalizing. Because if they don't internalize it, they're not ready for adulthood. And so, as we are thinking of parents about helping our kids to have a worldview, a frame of reference for thought and action that's anchored in God's word, it seems to me they should be able to answer seven questions. Now, um, this is not original with me. Um, a, a guy by the name of Jim Sire, who is with the Lord now, but he was a friend of mine. I had him give some lectures at Grace a couple of times over the years. But he has a wonderful little book. Uh, it's called The Universe Next Door. But in that book, he suggests seven questions that every worldview answers and should be able to answer. So let's go through those real quickly. Uh, I don't know which one I should point at. Which one are you most looking at? This one or this one? All right, I'll, does this work? But it doesn't work on that, does it? Well, all right, we'll just look at this. Number one is what is prime reality? The really real. Only a philosopher would ask a question like that, right? But what is prime reality? It's mean, what, what's beyond the physical world? Or is the physical world all there is? Is there something beyond the physical world? And it really, it's really asking this question, is there a God? Are there gods? Or is it just the natural world? What you see is what you get. Not according to Christianity. What is really real, what is prime reality, is the living God who has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself in his creation. He's revealed himself verbally in his word. He's revealed himself through conscience. And he's revealed himself, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is really real? What is prime reality? It's God. Islam says it's Allah. Buddhism says it's really you. The way in which you come into contact and understand with reality is turn inward. And you become to realize you come to realize that you are God. And that you go through the cycles in order to be united with the Great One. And you as a self disappear. You cease to exist. Hindu, I mean, just on and on, but the Bible declares who God is, he is primary reality. 
The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the world. The second worldview question is, what is the nature of external reality? What's the nature of the physical world that we inhabit? Um, that's, that gets at the creation issue. That gets at external reality is real. It's tactile. It's tangible. We can know it. We can understand it. Hinduism says it's an illusion. It isn't real. Buddhism says it's irrelevant. Biblical Christianity says external reality, the physical reality, is created by good, God. He declares it to be good. He gives us this responsibility to be his theocratic stewards over his world where we become creative cultivators with him. But as sin enters the world, which Genesis 3 explains to us, that external reality now bears a curse. So those two questions together are probably the most significant questions that our kids are going to be challenged with. Because generally speaking, and again, these are very broad stroke statements, but generally speaking in higher education, prime reality questions are so fluid and there's such, such an, an acceptance and an accommodation to pluralism in a broad way of understanding that, it doesn't matter how you answer that question. It's whatever works for you, whatever's best for you, whatever you're comfortable with, that's good. So it's a highly pragmatic view of those questions. But if you don't answer them correctly, if you don't have some basis for answering your questions, which I think can only be answered through revelation, you are, you are facing tremendous confusion, tremendous disorientation, and opening yourself up to all kinds of explanations to get that. Because what is external reality? Of course, that's where the whole theory and hypothesis of evolution comes in. And evolution, in terms of it being through an impersonal force, randomness explains it, there is no place for God. But the third one has become extremely important. It's probably one of the, the central worldview issues on the table today for our kids. I mean, you face it. But it, what, is, what is a human being? You know, at first, you know, that's a ludicrous question, but that's a really important worldview question. Because how you answer that question is going to impact how you view and value and consider worthwhile other human beings. It's probably the most profound ethical question on the table today. Because what our culture has done is it's answered, again, very broadly speaking, it's answered the question by saying, in effect, because of the paradigm of science, where it's thoroughly naturalistic, and there is no role for theism in it, then human beings are just a random cosmic accident. There is no design, there is no purpose. Um, this was when I was beginning my teaching, and all of you in this room weren't even born yet, but there was a, a program that was on national television called Cosmos. 
And the man that was uh, narrating it was a guy named Carl Sagan, one of the most well-known, uh, articulate uh, defenders of modern science and the paradigm of naturalistic evolution on, uh, alive at that time. And I remember distinctly one of the programs near the beginning as he's talking about bringing to a conclusion his, I think it was three, first three programs on naturalistic evolution, he says, now, the key linchpin of what I've been saying is that we as human beings are a cosmic accident. Which, you know, when you hear that the first time, and I was, I was a Christian, but a young Christian just starting to put things together, that was really a shocking thing to hear, a cosmic accident. But whether people want to say that very boldly or not, basically the paradigm we're following today in naturalistic evolution is actually exactly right. No design, no purpose. It's an accident. And that raises all kinds of questions because if we are a cosmic accident, then why does it matter how I treat you? Whereas biblical Christianity begins answering that question with this proposition rooted in God's revelation. Human beings are the only part of God's creation that bear his image. And that's the beginning point for the worth and value of human beings. James, the epistle of James in chapter 3 goes so far as to even say it matters how you talk about a human being. If you curse a human being, you're saying something about God because that human being is created in the image and likeness of God. You curse that human being, you're in effect cursing God. You see, that becomes a really important worldview question. What is a human being? Biblical Christianity says human beings bear the image of God, and therefore have infinite worth and value to God. And we know that's true because God the Father sent God the Son to add to his deity humanity, to come to earth, to die a substitutionary death, to, to rescue those rebels from their enslavement to sin and give them another way to live. That's how valuable humanity is to God. Unless our kids hear that again and again and again and again, they will, they will become overwhelmed with the culture's message that human beings are really an accident. And it becomes very, very difficult to build an ethical framework of why we should treat human beings with dignity. Biblical Christianity has the answer to that. No other worldview really does. And that has become, on the table, probably the most important, ethically and practically speaking, a question uh, of, of, of worldview importance. Then, moving on a little more hastily now, what happens to a person at death? And, of course, that, uh, that is of, of utmost importance, but to a 10-year-old Unless a family member has died or, or, or someone they know has died, that's not something they think much about, generally speaking. But this issue of what happens after you die is, of course, foundational. All worldviews have an answer to that question. But biblical Christianity says it depends, of course, on what you do with Christ. But the one thing the Bible is clear about is all human beings live forever. 
all human beings will experience resurrection. But one group of human beings will experience resurrection and spend eternity with Jesus. The other group of human beings will be resurrected and spend eternity in the lake of fire. It depends on what you do with Jesus. That ultimately is how you've got to get that question answered. But what happens after death is the resurrection. The immaterial part of humanity joins with the material part of humanity in the resurrection. And we will live forever. But it depends on what we do with Christ, where we live. Number five. Why is it possible to know anything at all? Only a philosopher would write that. This is what's called epistemology. But let's leave that aside and look at the second set of questions under number uh, five there. How can we know truth? Is there truth to know? Um, up until... World War II, there really would not have been much of a focus on a question like that. Because secular people and naturalistic people and Christian people and Jewish people and Buddhist people would all say, yeah, there is truth and we can know it. The naturalistic, secularistic person says, we know truth First of all, through the scientific method where we can verify things, test things, and come to a conclusion. That's truth. But since World War II, um, and there are a lot of really complicated reasons why this has happened, but um, that's, that's probably not true anymore. This relativistic view of things has so permeated everything in our culture and in our world, even in science, that it kind of depends. My goodness, I'm getting warm. Let's just think with me for a minute, if, if you would. Um, in the scientific revolution in the 1600s, the 17th century, a man named Isaac Newton, um, English scientist, brilliant guy, he's always a little bit perplexing to um, his biographers, because Newton spent more time studying the Bible than he did physics, optics, and the things he was interested in. He believed very strongly that in studying science, he's studying God, he's studying God's revelation, fantastic God. Uh, his view of Christ was a little hard to, to figure out, but the point is he was working very much from a Christian worldview, and as you know, he discovered, and he's really synthesizing a lot of stuff that had been floating around for a while, the laws of, 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 of physics, inertia, motion, all those things, gravity that you learn even in elementary school. And that was the reigning paradigm until the 20th century when a man named Einstein comes along. And Einstein says, and this is really not doing justice to what he said, but it's the best I can do. That's really not true completely because it depends on how fast you get a mass of material moving. It's really relative. And if you know anything about that, that was a profound 
observation. And it's as that sort of became, and it is today, kind of the mainstream paradigm now. Everybody is a child of Einstein. And that's not saying that he was wrong, but what started to happen is that spilled over into ethics. That spilled over into a lot of things. Maybe everything is relative. And so, where we are today, broadly speaking, is truth is defined by you. Truth is defined pragmatically. What works for you? That's truth. Does that mean there are not universal tr truths? Well, there are some, but you know, there's our, our world today, especially the, the American Western civilization culture, is very uncomfortable using the word absolute. I can show you academic publications that put the word truth in quotation marks. Because in that discipline, they cannot reach consensus on what truth is. Isn't that, that's almost bizarre, isn't it? But today, and I mean this very sincerely, in literature, I mean, in terms of history, which is my major discipline, history and historical theology, I mean, you just, you can't hardly get people to have consensus on much of anything that they would agree is truth. Truth is what works for you. Truth is viewed from your vantage point. Um, it's happened, and it really has exploded in liter literature. And uh, major academic conferences, the Modern Language Association, all these esoteric uh, conferences, you, you will see papers read where people are interpreting what an author said has no resemblance whatsoever to what Faulkner or John Steinbeck was really trying to say. Because authorial intent is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what the authors say. It doesn't matter what his intent was. All that matters is, what are you getting out of it? And it's what, what you do with it, how you process it. And so there's just, that's, that's a very dangerous thing in our culture. If you can't agree on basic truths. And so to answer that question is, is there truth to know? Well, it depends on what you mean by truth. You put it in quotation marks, yeah. But is there absolute truth to know that is always true, always relevant, always applicable, no matter where you are, when you are, geographically, wherever you are on planet Earth? You know, there aren't many people that are willing to really say, yes, that's true. Certainly when it comes to truth in terms of behavior, truth in terms of ethics, truth in terms of moral standards. It's highly relativistic. And postmodern autonomy is the ruling ethical framework of our world today. And if you do not believe me, then just think of what's happened in the last five years when it comes to how we define marriage in American civilization. What was once unthinkable in our culture becomes debatable. And over, debatable, over time as it's debatable, it then becomes acceptable. Western civilization, when it comes to truth, is firmly anchored in midair. And it's constantly changing. That's what our kids are growing up in. Joanne and Greg were over last night. We were talking about some of this because Joanne teaches fifth grade and her husband's 
involved in public relations things and so on. We were talking about some of that and Joanna said, you know, most of our friends, and a lot of these are Christian couples, she said, you know, most of our friends, they're, they're pretty progressive and liberal in the way they look at things. It's hard for them to reach conclusions about absolute things. <laughs> these are young adults, these are the millennials, these are the kids in their early 20s, these are kids that came out of Christian families. A couple of their friends, their parents are going to Israel with me in a couple of weeks. And that's who John was talking about. This is really important stuff, men and women, because if, if we don't help our kids to start to understand that there is such a thing as truth, and you can anchor your life on that, don't be anchored in midair, anchored on the rock, which is Jesus and his revelation of scripture, which gives you the standards by which you live your life. Which then leads to that, that sixth one, how do we know what's right and wrong? That's the fundamental question of ethics. I mean, it's hard in our culture today to, to say something like that. I mean, just think in sexuality issues. Which, and I, I say that because that's just kind of always on the front page of stuff. But just think, what are the boundaries of right and wrong and sexuality issues today? Adultery? Not really. Um, the fastest growing part of our culture is cohabitation. It's through the roof. Scandinavian countries, the majority of children born in Scandinavian countries are born to cohabiting adults. A generation ago, they would have called illegitimate. Not anymore. That's not how we look at it. The ethical framework of sexuality and marriage is so broad about the only thing that we want to say that's wrong. Rape is still wrong, praise the Lord. And pedophilia is still wrong most of the time. Because you do know there's a major organization, well-funded, called the National Man-Boy Love Association. They've been on national television. Their, their proposal is consensual love between a man and a boy can be good for the child. Consensual love. What was once unthinkable becomes debatable, gradually becomes acceptable. I'm starting to get emails from an organization in Utah. I don't know how in the world they got my email. But pushing polygamy. And the reason they're pushing polygamy is because all that the Supreme Court has done when it comes to same-sex marriage. Because they're saying the logic that's been used to uh, justify same-sex marriage is now applicable to us. How can they say polygamy isn't legitimate? That's a good question. I mean, it really is. It's a really good question. On what basis are we going to say polygamy is not? Because right and wrong has to be anchored in something absolute and has to be anchored in somebody that we can completely, totally trust and of course, that is God who's revealed himself. But if you reject that, then you are the determiner of what is right and wrong. And everybody has different ideas. So this is where we are as a culture. You have no right to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. What authority do you have in my life? Don't have any. Then don't tell me what I can do. And I mean, that's where we're at. So it's an autonomy that is just rapidly expanding in all these lifestyle choices. And our kids are growing up in that. My daughter is teaching kids that are now products of that. And these dear fifth graders, they don't have a clue. They, really, they don't have a clue on what is right and wrong. Some of them have seen so many things in their lives. You know, they, they, don't, they have no concept of marriage. They have no concept of what a man is supposed to do or a woman. They have no concept of that. It's an absolute disaster. And it's a result of 
we have so collapsed this idea of what is right and wrong. It just depends. You choose, and whatever works for you is good. And you can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Don't sit in judgment of me. Don't condemn me. How dare you do that? And finally is my favorite one, but it's probably the most irrelevant one to you, but what's the meaning of history? Because in our postmodern world, history is irrelevant. History is a fun thing to study. We love to read the biographies and so on. But history really is, is, it really isn't important. The technology that we have it in, our, in our culture today is very present-minded present and present-focused. And something that's a year old is too old. You know, don't talk to me about a thousand years ago. But you see, that's really an important question for you and me as Christians. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but it really is because our faith is anchored in historical reality. That 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus Christ who claimed to be a, the God-man who came to earth to redeem humanity because of their fallenness and sin and the rebellion which they're participating in. And he died and he was buried and he was resurrected. It was attested. It's the most attested event coming out of the ancient world. History matters. But that's not generally where our culture is today. History today is not taught. The big picture of history isn't taught in our schools. It's very fragmented how history is taught today. So kids have no sense of the big picture. They have no sense of how things fit together. You've seen the studies. Children today can't even tell you what century the Civil War was in. That's the most defining event in American history. The Civil War, everything up to that, everything after that, it's the most defining event in our history. And today, the majority of kids graduating from high school can't put it in the right century. Now, that's just one little thing about our country. But think of how important that is for our faith. Because our faith is anchored in a series of historical events that have a lot of evidence that it's true. As I said, it's the, Jesus' resurrection is the most attested event coming out of the ancient world. But you would never guess that from the way people treat that event, treat Jesus, let alone treat history. History is, relatively speaking, it's irrelevant to the postmodern world. All right. It's a quarter after. I have 120 seconds to answer any questions. <laughs> but I only have 120 seconds. It's like, by your body language, are you with me? Or is this a deer in the headlight look? You lost, you got lost the second question. I've dumped a lot on you tonight. I really have. But... Um, this is stuff I've lived with this all my life, and I teach this stuff that's very important to me. But as parents, um, as parents, these are some of the things that we need to have a framework for. Our church, I think your church does. But this is the kind of stuff really, really is important. Yes, sir. How would you answer the last question, sir? I would say history, the Bible presents history as linear. It has a beginning point, it has an ending point, and God is the sovereign providential God uh, over all things in history. And as a part of that, God has a plan, 
He's working that plan and the primary, not only, but the primary purpose of God's plan in history is a redemptive purpose. That's how the Christian, uh, that's how the Bible, that's how Christian begins to articulate. I have, when I teach history, I teach quite a bit of history. And I always start my classes with reviewing a Christian philosophy of history. I've written on that. I think it's extremely important. But again, that's, that's pretty foreign to most kids. They've never been taught to think that way. Jeff is looking at his watch, so I'm done, all right? Next week, I want to deal with some questions that I think we need to, very specific questions of Christianity that our kids have to be answered. I'm going to be able to, uh, I'm going to show you some resources (coughs) and some things that I think can help us as parents as well. So thank you very much.